On the birthday of the world, I begin to contemplate what I have done and left undone. This year, I want to call myself to task for what I have done and not done for peace. How much have I dared in opposition? How much have I put on the line for freedom, for mine and others? As these freedoms are paired, sliced, and diced, where have I spoken out? Who have I tried to move? Here I stand before the gates opening, the fire dazzling my eyes, and as I approach what judges me, I judge myself. Give me weapons of minute destruction. Let my words turn into sparks. So friends, here is our world as we look back and beautiful and terrible things have happened. Let us keep our hearts tender and our eyes soft because this is what you and I are about week after week, month after month, and year after year. We, we know there is just no answer but to love each other. And we bear witness against unnecessary destruction. And then we, we come in community to practice being the person that we say we want to be in 2019. We cannot do everything, but we can do something, and that something is not nothing. So in the words of Leonard Cohen, forget your perfect offering, there is a crack in everything. Say with me if you know it, that is how the light gets in. So for as long as I've been in the ministry here, 16 years, I guess, hard to believe, um, I have done uh, on the first and second Sunday of the new year, you have humored me by allowing me to share some of the top religious news stories of the previous year, and I stole this, as I told us before, from my mentor, Roger Payne, where I learned how to do ministry in Lincoln, First Parish in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Many of you tell me this is a sermon you look forward to all year, which is saying something, because usually the news is pretty much of a bummer. Which leads me to the insert. So I put it out, a pink insert. You need to pull this out for our sermon today. And you'll see at the very top, it says Voices of 2018. That at the top, you see it? That's a bitmoji of me <laughs> pulling out a bag of trash that says 2018. He has more hair than I do, but it kind of captures, and by the way, I need to, to thank Heather Walker, our administrator, for, for cutting and pasting all of these for us today. It kind of describes, this bitmoji kind of describes how, <laughs> when I was looking back, how I was feeling about the year. But then I listened to the song again that TNT just played for us about all the people who have resisted is Nina Simone, Mavis Staples, MLK. They sing in, it's not the waking, it's the rising, it's the grounding of the foot uncompromising. And then after that, I was reminded of one of my favorite Ralph Waldo Emerson quotes that I had not looked at in a long time that says how one of the greatest accomplishments that you and I can have is to be yourself for you to be you and me to be me, 
in a world that is constantly trying to make us something different. It feels like the world is trying to make me, and maybe you too, I mean, cynical, hopeless, angry, but not the righteous kind, just, just angry. Or just sad. That's how it can sometimes feel. I don't want to be that person. And I don't want you to be that, that person. So, with the help of Google, I sought out stories this year that show a little bit of hope, a little bit of salvation. And sometimes people wonder about that word, by the way. It just means it comes from the root. You'll know I'll do this to you. <laughs> Salve, heal, bomb, like chapstick, but for the soul. <laughs> I think that'll sell. You can take it from here. And resistance, which is what they sang about. I was looking for those stories. And if some of these stories don't seem to you outwardly religious, remember what I always tell us, yet another word, that the word religion comes from religio, which means to bring together that which has been torn apart. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to believe what the preacher is telling you. It means to heal. And God knows there's a lot of healing that needs to happen. So are we ready? We have new pew cushions this year, so you should be like <laughs> super comfortable for the next two hours. <laughs> All right. I got a new watch so I can keep time. Friends, number 10, the prince says, wow. In a year that saw the sexual abuse scandal rock again the Catholic Church, this time in Pennsylvania, and prominent leaders in the evangelical church resigning after years of sexual harassment and misconduct, how refreshing it was to watch as two billion people tuned into the royal wedding of Prince Harry, a white prince of colonial power, and Meghan Markle, a biracial, divorced American woman from its most famous breakaway province all of whom watched as the American Episcopal Bishop Michael Curry stepped up to the lectern in Windsor Castle and invoked MLK, a renegade Catholic priest, and slaves to preach to them about the power of love, the power of marriage, and the work that those two have to witness to the world and to offer Britain a new way forward showing along the way in his 13-minute sermon that some commentators said was too long, they haven't heard me, <laughs> showing that the church may not be so judgmental and irrelevant as some people think, said one BBC commentator, this is my favorite part, who will emerge victorious, the joy of Michael J. Curry or 600 overly polite English scowls? <laughs> and I'm aware that my my mother-in-law and my wife are from England, uh, so maybe I won't be able to go home later today. <laughs> but the answer to that question was for all of us to see on the listening faces of Harry and Meghan, who after the bishop sat down in full view of the cameras, turned to each other and said, mouth the words, wow. 
Go home and watch the sermon. Number nine, don't be a meanie. Many of you send me gifts of a good pew study. What's a pew study? It's, it's not what you're sitting in. A pew study is named after the Pew family that started a nonpartisan research center in D.C., and they issue all kinds of studies and results about surveys on politics and social issues and religion. And one of you sent me recently one that showed that people under 30, when they were asked what is one word that comes to mind when they hear the word church, they said this word, mean. Now, oh, the same study, by the way, also showed that most of them and many of us think that religion is irrelevant to the problems facing the world today. This is my life's work. It's hard to not feel a little defensive. But given all the things that are done in God's name worthy of shame and blame, it's, it's actually, I kind of sympathize. It's why all of you and me sometimes are so sheepish about calling ourselves religious. I'm spiritual, not religious, you say, for fear that someone else would get the wrong idea about you, that you might be mean, right? In a world broken with too much language and Twitter and weaponized words, it is up to churches, ministers, to show and not tell who we are. This isn't in my, uh, my script for today, but you know, forget anything that I say today. When someone says, what did you do at church today? What did you hear? I heard that the kids went to learn about immigration during their morning classes today, that the whole month is on winterim. Show, not tell. But I did get these stories of inspiration this year, the stuff you don't normally hear, of the Covenant Church in Carleton, Texas, evangelical, conservative church. We wouldn't share a lot with them theologically, who on Easter Sunday decided to forego its advertising budget of $100,000, which we don't have. It's a lot. They, f they set that aside and they instead decided to put that towards wiping out the medical debt of local families. But even more powerfully, they used this company called RIP Medical Debt. It's a nonprofit that buys up and abolishes medical debt. So since the debt can be bought by collection agencies, that hundred grand turned into, translated into $10 million since Easter. It has wiped out the debt of 4,229 veterans since Easter. And then I read about the Grace Church in Amherst, Massachusetts, that raised money and then sent volunteers to rebuild St. Matthew's School in Haiti. And they needed to do this because all of the kids as many people as here today, about 200 or so, were in a classroom the size of a basketball gymnasium. They sent money and they sent volunteers. But what I loved was one quote by the volunteer, John Stilfer, who lives in Amherst, who was kind of like, why are we sending it so far away when we have needs at home? We've heard this before, right? We feel it, I feel it, you feel it. 
And he went down there and he saw the impact that the money in the church was having and he said this, I'm beginning to understand why we are here. And then last but not least, Old South Church in Boston, which you can see when you go down to the city, that decided to take a portion of its annual pledges and instead of like fancying up their sanctuary, they built an elevator up to their pulpit, is huge, up to the pulpit so that they could have different kinds of people who are not able-bodied like me be able to preach and offer readings in their worship service. It wasn't in the globe. We're going to need our sheets again, friends. Number eight, is it a bird? Is it a plane? Two weeks ago, this Tuesday, on Christmas Day, Guy Benson was out for his usual morning walk at the Nature Reserve in Nottingham, England. He had his iPhone in his hand. When he came over a hill and he saw a swirling mass of starlings, there were thousands of them, and they erupted from the grasses because they must have been scared by something. And then they began to dodge and to weave. This is called a murmuration, if you've ever seen. Has anyone ever seen starlings? Okay. That wasn't unusual, especially in the UK. But what ne happened next was, as Guy watched in astonishment as the thousands of starlings, each taking a cue from the others, eventually became the shape <laughs> of a giant bird. And you can see the picture at the bottom on the second page. Guy took photos and then he videoed, it's a minute long, of these starlings in the shape of a giant falcon across the sky. It is unbelievable. And this is what he said. You could hear them all flapping their wings and swishing over my head, I just stood there with my mouth open and, of course, my camera on. Here's the thing, Guy said. There are thousands of people's, people who live close by to this park. But so often, many of them and myself do not see the ordinary miracles like this that are going on. Maybe because we're always carrying our iPhones. The moral of this story, look Pay attention and notice. Number seven, the headline read, Shalom. So the Supreme Court this summer upheld the current administration's Muslim ban, restricting Muslims to the U.S. from several majority countries, and then it further inflamed anti-Muslim rhetoric here and abroad. In the middle of all that, these headlines that I didn't find until yesterday. These Muslims showed us who they are, like when after the attack on the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh and the anti-Semitism in the UK, all of these Muslim groups in England took out a full-page ad in the newspaper to voice their opposition to anti-Semitism. In giant, bold, black text across the top, the ad read, we Muslims have one word for the Jews of the world, shalom. The ad went on to say, as British Muslims, we believe that the time has come to speak out. For too long, anti-Semitism has gone unchecked. 
eradicating it is a challenge faced by all of us. And then secondly, the story I heard was that on New Year's Day, just like, you know, a couple weeks ago, 1,000 members of the Muslim Youth Association in the UK again took to the streets of 50 different cities in that country for a New Year's Day cleanup. And they kicked off the morning with a special prayer service for the new year, and then they put on these high-vis vests, and they had grabbers and, and bags in their hand. On the back of the vest it read, in Islam, cleanliness is a part of faith. And I'm thinking, maybe I should convert my kids to Islam. <laughs> Number six, my friends. It was the divest of times. It was the worst of times. I love coming up with these titles. This story is for the cherished living earth part of our call to ministry. So by all accounts, 2018 was horrible for the environment. Scientists explain that the, that the current state of warming will cause changes akin to a meteor strike. The former EPA chief, Scott Pruitt, spent thousands of our tax dollars, years in mine, on coins, flights, and security cones of silence in his office. And he also overturned and weakened current rules on clean air and clean water. Brazil got a new president. He says he's going to open the Amazon to logging. And the U.S. showed up to the, to the global climate change summit representing fossil fuel companies. Oh, my God. Right? So imagine my surprise. See, in years past, it would have ended it there, and we'd just been like, oh, man. Can the band come up and sing again? Imagine my surprise when I read the following evidence that this year wasn't totally terrible. Are you ready? Please. First, Democrats flipped the House in November, and a slew of environmentalists ran on a climate platform in order to get elected into Congress. The Green New Deal proposed by some of them hasn't quite caught the steam, but here's the thing. These people got elected, got elected on the platform of changing the way that we think and talk about climate change, which for some reason in our country and not the rest of the world has become politicized. Second thing, cities said, I do to clean energy. 45 cities signed up on making a clean energy the primary source of energy by 2030 in America, including, I love this, Abita Springs, Louisiana, where the conservative mayor, a Republican, Greg Lemon is among a growing cadre of conservatives who believe renewable energy and their party's conservatism go hand in hand. I mean, it's not a lot of a stretch to think that, but you can, it's the he's the first guy. Third, green courts. This 2018 was the year of the climate change lawsuit. Two cities in California let loose against major polluters in lawsuits, and then others followed along, including Boulder, New York City, Richmond, Virginia, the state of Rhode Island, and most recently, Baltimore. Number four, the year of the carbon tax, almost. A bipartisan group, which is like this, do you even know what that word means? A bipartisan group in the House proposed not one, but two carbon pricing schemes to help incentivize cleaner energy. And last, 
or no, not last, two more to go. Big oil pipes got clogged. You know the Keystone Pipeline, remember all of that? And then Trump approved it. Well, a judge, a federal judge, blocked that pipeline because he said that the administration had failed to consider climate change when they approved it. So it is stalled. And then last, divestments from oil companies went big. Did you know that the entire Republic of Ireland is divesting? I didn't know that. Did you know the New York City, the entire city is divesting its pension from fossil fuels by 2022? It's the largest pension fund in the entire country. I didn't know that. The moral, is there work to do? Of course there is. Is work happening that we didn't know about? Absolutely. We're halfway there. How are we feeling? <laughs> All right. I mean, it was lukewarm affirmation, but I'll take it. <laughs> Number five, Mennonite kids teach former Attorney General Jeff Sessions and the rest of us how to read the Bible. Do you remember several months ago, my many of us, my non-Bible reading friends, but many of us heard Jeff Sessions cite Romans 13 as an argument for separating parents from kids at the border. Do you remember that? I mean, he's a, he's a devout Christian man. This is what the text says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those authorities that exist which have been instituted by God. Now, you read that, I read that, and we're like, you know what, this Bible, I'm just like, get it out of my life. Right? That's what happens. But we would be making a mistake. Melissa Floor Bixler, who is a Sunday school teacher in her Mennonite church, spent the entire semester of her Sunday school class on Romans 13. Now, the Mennonites were, they were an illegal breakaway religious group from the Catholic Church who were hunted down and killed by, by the government for baptizing each other in the name of Jesus. So they might have something to say about this scripture. Imagine how they felt when they heard Sessions use that passage for the good of the empire, to keep people silent, in line, submissive. Imagine how they felt. So they spent 12 weeks trying to understand the text and the context of the text. And there's two theories about this text that I didn't know. One is that it was meant to convince listeners that Caesar, who was, of course, alive at the time and thought himself a deity, the text was trying to convince the listeners that actually Caesar is just a puppet of God and Caesar is not the, the head guy in charge. So just don't worry too much. That's one theory. And the other theory that I just love is that Paul was involved in a smuggling operation. <laughs> and the passage was meant to trick the guards at all the checkpoints who were trying to find the Christians who were on the hunt for Christians to make them believe that the Christians were more submissive than they actually were. If we discard the text and let people like Jeff Sessions take it, we cannot compete and tell them that we can be religious people. We can be Bible readers 
and we can remind them that the way that he is using it is weaponizing a text. But we have to be willing to learn. I do. You do. We do. We need to counteract those people who would seek to abuse our tradition and to weaponize our tradition to make a case for the government's actions. That's about as preachy as I get. <laughs> Number four, top this, British Bake Off. <laughs> After years of legal batters, battles the June, in June, the Supreme Court, <laughs> do you like that? Just making sure you're paying attention. After years of lipping, whipping up legal battles, in June, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Jack Phillips, a Colorado baker who refused on religious grounds, remember, mean, okay, to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. In response, my, one of my favorite web page discoveries of the week was this. It's, it's titled, 14 Wedding Cakes to Remind Us That Even the Supreme Court Cannot Stop Same-Sex Love. It's a great web page. <laughs> and among the cakes is one that has two Marvel action figures, the Falcon and then Captain America, and they represent Lane and Lincoln. And they're, and they're perched on, these are like the full-size action figures, and they're perched on top of the cake in a full embrace. And then the other one is there's, there's two body-positive Barbie dolls holding hands. And then and then a whole bunch of the most beautiful, whipped, rainbow-tasting, icy, glory cakes you have ever seen. Friends, a new legal case against Phillips is pending. Number three, friends, more Bible. Mary Magdalene's rule. Who knows who Mary Magdalene was in the stories? Sarah. <laughs> Shout it out. Not, I would, anybody know? She's considered a prostitute. And she's also the only woman in the Bible that is in each of the gospel stories who was there witnessing Jesus' crucifixion. And she was the woman that found the empty tomb. We've done this like play on Easter sometimes. And do you know what her rule is? It's in the text. To believe women when they tell you things which she said because she went to the men to tell them about the empty tomb, and they said, you're just seeing things. I don't believe you. It's interesting to me how this text can continue to be so relevant. Since we saw Christine Blasey Ford come forward and tell her story of being sexually assaulted by the now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh when the two were teenagers, Women in our congregations, our communities have told their clergy, their friends, their Facebook community, and almost anyone who will listen and believe about their stories of what has happened to them at the hands of their dads, their boyfriends, their brothers, their classmates, their colleagues, their bosses, and yes, their clergy. This is true in my life. It's true in your life. As a man, a minister, a husband, a dad of a daughter, and a son, who has heard these stories, I am called again and again with greater conviction in this Me Too era to listen, to believe, to be an ally, to be an advocate for women in my life, and to partner with men who we all need and we can grow and learn and listen and love.
Friends, number two, bodies on the line. On November 23rd, Samuel Oliver Bruno left City Well United Methodist Church in Durham, North Carolina for the first time since taking sanctuary there in December of 2017. So he'd been there, you know, for a year. He had been a Duke Divinity student and he was a longtime U.S. resident, but then he returned in Mex to Mexico in 2011 because his dad had had a heart attack. And then he returned across the border illegally in 2014 when his wife needed surgery. And so he went to find sanctuary in that church. And he asked the immigration ICE to give a reprieve for the deportation order. And they summoned him, and they said they summoned him for fingerprinting. They said, we'll see, come for fingerprinting. But what he didn't know was the sting operation. So while in line, Sam and his son, who's a U.S. citizen, were tackled by immigration and customs enforcement agents and then took them out to an unmarked van in the back of the courthouse. But there, ICE had to contend with Sam's church family. A hundred people surrounded the van and began to sing and to pray, and they refused to move. It took, they had to arrest all of those people before the van could depart two hours later. Sam was deported on November 29th. You're thinking, well, that, that's not hopeful, Nathan. <laughs> but it is resistance. Because after what happened, the church members, they created this new messaging system for all their smartphones to all the, the churches, the sanctuary churches in that city to quickly mobilize and support people like Sam who were kind of tricked into going to this fingerprinting thing and to alert all those people so those, those kids and those dads and those moms would not go. Some of you have said to me, and I see it on the news, that, that immigration is a legal issue and that when folks break the law, they need to be held accountable. I get that. But I'm not a lawyer. I'm a minister. And what I say is that this is a religious issue for me. And when I look to my, our faith tradition, mine and yours, and I read the text, all I hear there is that we are called to welcome the stranger and care for the sick and provide shelter for the dispossessed. How we negotiate these times knowing that no one leaves their home unless, as the reading that we have shared before, is the mouth of a shark. People don't leave home because they just want to hang out here. They're desperate people. How we handle this as a country is a test not of our laws. It is a test of our character. What will it mean for me and for you to put our bodies where our beliefs are? And friends, our last uh, story, it's a couple minutes long, but I want us to hear it. This is the speech from Rabbi Jeffrey Myers given after 11 members of his congregation were killed in the, this fall at the Tree of Life Synagogue. And he gave this, I think, the night after to, um, to 
to all the politicians in the city. I'm a victim. I'm a survivor. I'm a mourner. So God, why us? Why couldn't he turn his car a different direction? I began services at 9.45. The shooting started a few minutes after. There were 12 of us in the sanctuary at that time. And this is customary in the Jewish faith, and I've also seen it in other faiths. All the early people come and sit in the back. I helped pull out the people that I could from the front, but alas, I had eight people in the back. One fortunately survived. Seven of my congregants were shot dead in my sanctuary. My holy place has been defiled. I thought to myself, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, God, I want. What I want, you can't give me. You can't return these 11 beautiful souls. At the end of Noah, God says, I recognize that from his youth, man is prone to evil. What a depressing thought. Isn't there a chance for good? The answer is, yes, there is. You don't have to follow the prone to evil path. We can also be prone to good if you decide to take that path. It starts with speech. Words of hate are unwelcome in Pittsburgh. It starts with everyone in this room. And I want to address for a moment some of our political leaders who are here. Ladies and gentlemen, it has to start with you as our leaders. of hate my mother always taught me if you don't have anything nice to say say nothing if it comes from you Americans will listen but let's not forget one really important thing independent of what happens tonight, independent of what any of our elected officials choose to do from here on. It's us. We, the people. Friends, in 2019, may we discover the power of our words. 
May we learn how and what we can hope for and save for and resist for and put our bodies on the line for. And may we be the stories of hope that we want to see in the world that, boy, it is so desperate for them. So, happy, holy, grace-filled, salvation-filled, hopeful new year. Amen. We made it. <laughs>